Hi and welcome to Insecurity, a podcast about computer security built from the ground up. Visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, the show notes, and to leave comments. You can contact us by sending an email to feedback at in-security.org or follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name is Matt. And my name's Max. How you doing this week, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, my basement's a little bit flooded, but other than that, I'm doing fantastic. We've gotten a lot of snow, and today it was above zero. And apparently the window that's attached to my cold storage, which makes it a humid and warm storage for some reason, is, uh, yeah, it just overflowed with water. And that's leaking into my cold storage, which is leaking into my basement which is feet away from the office that I'm currently in. So I've taken a hiatus from mopping it up in order to bring this podcast out. And we appreciate that as the listeners of Insecurity on behalf of, no, pretty much just exclusively as all of the listeners of Insecurity, I would like to say thank you. Yeah, no worries. No worries. How are things with you? Things have been great. Things have been fantastic. We've had uh, a banner week this week. We've started with the social networking a little bit more than before. Right. Insofar as we've also started trying to pimp the podcast. Um, Who knows exactly how it's going to work out, but I think that it's something that we can definitely learn from. Uh, We've been trying it a lot more than usual. Well, any any feedbacks, good feedback, and even if it's hurtful hurtful feedback so for what it's worth i took the entire day off i don't know why or i don't remember why uh at some point when i was doing the scheduling i took a look at my scheduling and i realized february looks like it's a month that's full of days where i am not on vacation so i arbitrarily Mm. chose wednesday because i like how it breaks up the week So that was today. Uh, I spent most of the day not doing anything productive and then the rest of the day editing episode 14. Fantastic. I also went ahead and I posted episode 13. Today I got approval to go to CanSec West. Oh, nice. Yes, which is the 12th through the 14th in lovely Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I've, I've been trying to go to this conference for three years and I finally got approval. To do it uh, from a professional standpoint? Yeah, work's sending me. Nice. Well, that's even better. It is indeed. They're paying for my airfare, for my conference fees, and for my hotel for the time that the conference is on. Thanks, work. Sweet. Do we have any follow-up this week? I was really hoping that there would be some follow-up. There's mailing lists that talk about vulnerabilities that are out there. And everything that we talked about in last episode and two episodes previous to that or three episodes previous to that. So episode, um, I guess, 11, 12, and 15 have, we've talked about a bunch of different vulnerabilities, right? We talked about common web app vulnerabilities a couple of times, and then we set it up, we did hardening, and then we set it up uh, for how the computer works in the deep, deep CPU memory part of it, and then we talked about all the memory and CPU errors. So. Referencing back to that, if you subscribe to like the bug track mailing list or anything like that, if you look for like security bugs, because there's security bugs that are announced all the time, vulnerabilities that are found and whatnot, um, typically after patches have been produced, uh, 
you will actually be able to apply the stuff that we've taught you into a real world and understand how programs are, are broken. Like they don't go into the super detailed stuff typically. They do sometimes. Um, and if you're like a total nerd and want to go into that like I do sometimes, then by all means do. But uh, at, at a very high level, you'll understand, okay, there was a buffer overflow found in this. There was an off by one found in this that was, you know, results in this program being broken that can be attacked remotely or whatnot. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's something that I wanted to tie back. So there's a really good uh, bug track mailing list that I subscribe to. It's B-U-G-T-R-A-Q for track. And then if you go to that.com, you can find uh, a security mailing list if you're like an administrator and need to stay on top of packages I highly, highly suggest that you subscribe to that. And of course, we will have a link to that available in the show notes if you go to in-security.org slash EP016. All right. So that's all that I had for follow-up. Did you have any follow-up? No. Okay. I haven't listened to the last episode. Did you understand it when I was talking about it? Did it seem to make sense to a commoner or is this like a little too deep? Which? Episode 15? Yes. I don't know. I haven't listened to it. I only just completed. There. The, I was talking to you. Oh, I, I don't listen when you speak. I don't listen when I speak, <laughs> let alone when you speak. I assume that we were relatively on par there or else I would have brought up objections. I think that this week we are going to try something again, since everything we're doing is trying something new. I think this week we're going to try something even newer. Uh, yeah, this week is a cop out episode. <laughs> well riding on the coattails of um two really heavy episodes i think that it's fair i think that we should we should try and get the the content a little bit lighter a little bit easier to uh to grasp or to wrap your head around indeed give uh, people a little bit of time to digest everything that we said and give them time to go back and listen and read up on those links if need be so Typically, we don't want to uh, cover news so much, but news is actually somewhat important in keeping ourselves refreshed on the topics that we've been covering. So in an enterprise type situation, if you want to be responsible for the security of an organization, it's very important to bring stuff down to a language level that the the people, the users that you're talking to, the business users, the technology groups can understand uh, and bring out stuff that, you know, executives will see in newspapers and make it relevant to them. I think another really beneficial thing of staying on top of the news is that in an industry like computer security or information technology, there is no end to the learning curve. Everything is constantly changing. Everything is constantly uh, moving. So the one of the, the good ways to stay on top of it, or at least to stay uh, aware or alert or abreast of the situation, is essentially try and read up on some news articles. You'll see what new things are becoming prevalent. And in some situations, they'll be beneficial to you. In our situation specifically, tying to this podcast, You'll see that with just these news articles that we're going to look at today, how 
everything becomes super relevant to everything we've discussed going like up to this point. It's true. Uh, another very important thing about keeping on top of the news as far as who's getting breached and whatnot, the, the information security industry versus the attackers, the attackers are far more nimble and quicker to move. Uh, it, and we as an information security industry have to actually learn against the victims who are getting compromised. So if a victim gets compromised and they're very transparent about how it happened, it's a very big help to the rest of the industry so we can see the the nuances within it other than just hearing that somebody got popped, somebody got compromised and lost a whole bunch of records. It's how they got compromised, how those records were lost that's very important to for every security professional to foster the defenses of what they can control. Right. As you've said before, history is always doomed to repeat itself. And also in the same way that every time you bring up a common vulnerability, I explain how I've already done that. (laughs) Right. In this situation, it's definitely beneficial to us to take a look at what other people have had to deal with and what other people have had to cope with. And then just to abstract it one more time for the heck of it. If you've got a boss who's reading the uh, newspaper articles and they're like, well, is this something that's going to, because that's how bosses always sound. Jenkins, is this going to affect our company? Right. And, and you need to be able to respond to that saying, well, we've thought of this already and we're protected in this way. Or, you know, that thing I've been bugging you about for months that we really need funding for. That would really protect us for this. Oh, well so, played. Uh, yes. And uh, another good thing about keeping on top of the news is although history does repeat itself, history comes and goes in waves. So you'll see these attacks that have maybe existed in another way coming back into popularity. And so you can you can shift the focus of your limited resources to look at, you know, the things that are commonly being attacked. Kind of like how I was saying the antivirus companies do that. They can only hold a limited number of signatures and they just put in what's popular. It's just using, allocating your resources in the best way possible. So what is our first topic? First article. So one that's made a lot of waves um, all over the media in the security industry, outside of the security industry, is really the breach that happened to Target right around the Black Friday. You've heard of this, I assume. Just for my understanding of your knowledge of it, why don't you tell me what you know about the breach? I did, in fact, hear about this. This was the the breach that happened to Target. Uh, the massive consumer generally started in the States and has now breached it or reached out into Canada. This was their credit card point of sale systems had ended up being compromised and people have, or not people attackers have been managing to gain access to the credit card numbers as well as the address information for customers. Right. So do you know how they went about getting access to this? I mean, how they were able to get credit card numbers. They were able to get the credit card numbers because at some point during the point of sale system transaction, there is 
a point at which the credit card information is unencrypted and is passed to the computer that they are using to process the payment after which it gets stored in memory and then it gets encrypted and then it is sent out to be processed. Now, do do you know much about credit cards themselves? Some, but not enough, evidently. Especially the ones in the States. Primarily, the cards, from what I understood from these articles, the cards that were being affected were the ones that didn't have chip and pin available on them. And they were the ones that were using the magnetic swipe. That's right. The the magnetic strip on a credit card. There's actually two tracks on that magnetic strip and they contain the actual credit card number on the track one strip and they contain expiration date, name and address maybe on the on the second strip. So there's there's two tracks uh, on that one strip and it contains information about the card number and expiration date and i can't remember but maybe even the person's address and uh and it's just sitting there unencrypted it's just a magnetized strip just like uh an audio tape in the 80s had the audio just on a magnetic strip is there any reason that they store that information unencrypted on the card because the card issuers are dealing with really old technology and haven't implemented proper protection back in the day. And that is something that chip and pin was meant to correct. So chip and pin, from what I understand, while we're on the topic, is you have, is it an RFID chip? No, it, it's a, it's just a little programmatic chip that can do the decryption. It's like, it, it's not an RFID chip. It's little transistor. It, it's like those old bell phone cards it's a it's the chip on there like rfid is just radio frequency right so this isn't radio frequency it actually needs contacts in places for the electronics in it to work right it does validation on the card of the pin entered into the pin terminal to be able to negotiate securely back to the bank that uh visa or mastercard is transacting upon so that's why essentially whenever you get these new cards, you then have to program them through your bank. You plug it in and then you, not so much with the credit cards, but when you do the new bank cards. On your bank card or on a Canadian or European type Visa or MasterCard, it operates under the same technology is that you actually enter in a PIN to allow the transaction to occur. And that PIN works with your credit card to your bank. So then these cards themselves are not, uh, the chip and PIN is not completely invulnerable. It's just significantly better security. Correct. Correct. And we, and we can get into that later. Um, I watched a really awesome Black Hat presentation on that like three or four years ago, which I suppose we could put a link to in the show notes. <laughs> We could, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so so the fact that a credit card stores this information clear, unencrypted, just on a magnetic stripe, on that mag stripe, when we're not talking about chip and pin, it's it's vulnerable to man in the middling. And that's what these point of sale compromise point of sales did is they had like a 
this man in the middle there that was able to read either the RAM or the magnetic strip as it goes across. So in some of the articles that I read, they were mentioning that there was a scraper which would effectively, while the unencrypted information was transferred over, it would then be stored temporarily in RAM. And then they had a piece of software that was effectively scraping the RAM and getting this unencrypted information. Yep, that's one of the two possible ways that it happened. At one point, I worked as a cashier and I was bored and I was playing with the card reader that we had. And I would regularly just run any cards that I had that had a magnetic strip. And you could see clearly just by passing the magnetic strip through that it would simply give the information written on the card. All it was doing was transcribing the card number for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's just a factor of the technology used. It's old technology. It's easy for people to develop their own card readers. I'm sure you've heard stories about people going to restaurants and having their visa card stolen. Yes. And it's not that it's actually stolen from them. It's just that somebody, uh, a waitress or a waiter has run the card through a card reader, taken a copy of the magnetic data from the card and copied it to their pocket. And then they can use it later for things like online purchases. Right. Okay. So, so their point of sales terminals were compromised and not just one, many, many of them were compromised. So my next logical question is how, right? How did somebody compromise all of these point of sale terminals? That's what I asked too. And then the first article that I read just was practically a puff piece by comparison insofar as it didn't really mention how it had gone down. Right. So you know that there is malware introduced to the network somehow, but you don't know how they got into the internal network. And specifically, we don't know if the target just has what is called a flat network where all of their computers are on the same network as their point of sales and whatnot. But we do know that somehow a malicious outsider or a malicious insider had compromised all of these point of sales terminals got this malicious program to run on it, and then the data was leaving the organization somehow. So people, Target, thankfully, have been pretty transparent about what occurred. And the way that they got compromised in the first place is they had this system that outside parties were using, their their vendors were using this account payable software called Ariba. Uh, and it's not, it's not necessarily the fault of the software, but they had provisioned access to these external parties for them to log in remotely into this accounts payable software for them to fill out their billing for the month. And then that goes to the accounts payable people or accounts receivable people to, to pay, uh, you know, whatever the monthly dues are. So in this case for Target, it was the HVAC guys, the guys who are responsible for the air conditioning of the stores, the refrigeration, and that type of stuff uh, for Target's stores, went to the head office and they were entering in how much was owed. So those people that ran the HVAC got compromised and then the bad guys went through those HVAC folks to then compromise the um the that Ariba software system 
and then went through that system to distribute the malware. Why would an attacker think to go through an air conditioning company if they wanted to get credit card numbers from a store? Right. And there's probably a bunch of different reasons why these people would have gone through the HVAC. Like potentially somebody had found that this company was targets HVAC folks or potentially, you know, either through dumpster diving, finding a receipt or whatnot in a dumpster or having seen advertisement on the HVAC folks website saying that these are our customers that we service because they do that um, or whatever. But it's not necessarily that these people knew. Um, there's no knowledge of how long the HVAC company was compromised. They could have been compromised for a year and just not known it. Right. And then these criminals who are in there discovered what they had were able to figure out, okay, what are the next steps that we're going to do? Or they could have had the recon done all along and it was just a bang, bang, bang type thing and got all the way through to the the point of sales terminals. Some of the speculation was that they weren't in fact targeted directly. Their theory is that it was a result of having run or opened malicious email or gone through like a phishing email scam where they were asked to provide their login credentials. Yeah. So, so it did seem like the HVAC folks were fished, but these, these HVAC guys were compromised for a while before the, the attack against target, if I recall correctly. But so from one of the articles that we're going to have in the show notes, this Krebs on security article, they used a term that I really liked. So I wrote this down in my notes. It was a shotgun attack, which effectively explains most of the phishing scams out there insofar as all they do is they just they shoot out. Sorry, let me let me read it the way they wrote it. Uh, An attack that blasts out email far and wide only after the attackers have had time to comb through the victim list for interesting targets. Do they begin to separate the wheat from the chaff or the signal from the noise? So in much the same way that most phishing scams in my experience work, you don't really care so much about whether the people you're targeting or writing to even have an account with any of these companies, any of these third-party companies. I regularly receive emails saying, hey, my Citibank bank account has been... compromised or needs me to re-authenticate my login and seeing as i don't have one (laughs) seeing as i have never dealt with citibank nor will i ever not an issue and never going to be an issue so i simply ignore these as i assume that they're phishing scams and there have been there have been times when i've received a notification from you know paypal saying look, we've just undergone various changes. We need you to log into your PayPal account and make sure that you authenticate your information so that we can keep your records up to date. And I had a friend who regularly dealt with PayPal um, and had multiple accounts and actually went through with this on one of his accounts. Ouch. Right. Uh, It was quite fortunately the only personal account that he had that had almost no financial information on there. But after doing that, he realized the error of his ways. 
but it was just because these blanket emails were sent out. Hmm. So you think that what you've read indicated that the, the HVAC company got fished by something that looks like it was a target email saying, hey, what's your target Active Directory credentials? That seemed to be, or at least that's what I got from the article. Hmm. They also had some sort of malware that was uh, installed at the time. So I don't right. know if it was actually the credentials or if it was just some sort of malware, like here's a software update or something to that effect. Yeah, apparently the HVAC company was using some free version of an antivirus program that's not meant for commercial use. It's still an excellent piece of software, but it's not, you know, it, it, it's, it's not intended to catch things at the professional corporate level. Right. Yep. So the long end of the story is that the HVAC company was compromised. The system that they did have access to was then hopped through to then send stuff throughout the target network to compromise the the point of sales terminals. Ram scraper was copied into it, and then this information was sent out of the target's corporate network so that the credit card numbers were out there. And initially, the thought was, yes, this, this compromise had only affected the folks in the States, but... Uh, it actually also affected the Canadian shoppers for the time period. And initially they had thought that the compromise was of 40 million credit card numbers. But it turns out that upon further investigation, it's actually 70 million credit card numbers. That is an astonishing number. Target is a very popular store, especially around Black Friday and leading up to Christmas. Interestingly enough, and also unfortunately enough, they weren't the only ones vic- that fell victim to this kind of attack or this attack in particular. Um, one of the other articles that we had read uh, speaking about this exact same topic was that Neiman Marcus themselves fell victim to this. Well, at least the article said to this very same attack. Yeah, so it was definitely their point-of-sales terminals that were also compromised. Neiman Marcus has less retail outlets and is a little bit priced out from most common people. So I suspect that that's why they had been compromised for a full three months before they they figured it out. And they had only suffered 1.1 million credit card records being breached. So I guess they're not quite as popular as target. Right. And they complained that it was super advanced malware that had bypassed all antivirus detection. They got their point of sales compromised and the Ram scrapers were copying out credit card numbers and whatnot, but no pin data was copied because Neiman Marcus doesn't accept pins. Like that's a good thing. I don't know. But so then this kind of makes me wonder if it's only the magnetic stripe information that's being compromised, why would they still keep that information in a raw form on the card? Well, it's very expensive to change the system to modernize it like we've done in Canada. In Canada, there's only like five major 
banks, right, that, that issue it. So it was pretty easy for us to all switch over. And the cost of the chips is, it's been around in Europe for a while. So it's actually not that expensive to get these chips. And so for the five major banks in Canada to do the overhaul, it was relatively straightforward, like a year and a half project to revolutionize the back end and roll out the cards. Well, I guess this kind of ties back to episode 10, where we were talking about risk versus cost. Is it presumably just that the cost they figure, well, you know, the amount of money that we have to pay to people who have been compromised is less than what it would cost us to actually resolve this? So typically that is the the catalyst for people to want to make the change. But there's also the whole fact that now there's been a few compromises for these point of sales uh, recently. There's been a lot more in the past. Uh, there's whole carding rings, which is the term for the the folks who specialize in reproducing these credit cards and giving it to people to go out and make purchases for them and then eBaying off that purchase and the whole money laundering component to it to turn the dirty stolen cash into good cash. I mean, that's been documented and, and seen for years. So the rise in popularity at this and the people just yelling at the credit card company saying, you can't just have a 16-character credit card number being stored in a magnetic thing and expect people to protect that. So I believe that you know people are going to ask for change in a loud enough voice that hopefully after this, there's no reason why the U.S. will stay on just the mag stripe. In Canada, what we've done with the introduction of chip and pin is we've actually said, hey, look, you can do MagStripe as much as you want, but no longer will the banks be accountable for the compromise of a credit card number based on the MagStripe. It's you, the retailer, who will be held accountable for all of the losses that have been occurred for that, right? So now all of the all of the point-of-sales guys, they go, well, crap, okay, maybe it's worth actually shelling out the 250 bucks for that new per point of sale reader to, you know, be able to accept chip and pin and work out the negotiation with the actual banks to be able to process those, which I think in Canada was the actual real stumbling block for the adoption. Like up till like a year ago, I still couldn't pay for my groceries by a chip and pin. They'd actually have to do that mag stripe, but they, they take all the accountability for fraudulent transactions. Now it's moving more and more to these tap type things. Ah, yes, the RFID tap things. But those those are limited, right? You can only do a $50 maximum transaction through the uh, tap and go type payment systems. Okay. And does that have similar encryption to the, to how, how would that work? No, I, I don't believe so. I don't know for a fact, but I've heard that it's just, like an RFID that's transacted and the actual human who's responsible for the account is pretty much responsible for detecting that their account's been compromised through this, but they're not accountable for any of the money lost. It's back on the banks, but you're not going to see the same, you know, $20 billion in loss to a bank that you would through normal mag stripe cloning and stuff that, uh, 
was the case in the past. Maybe not 20 billion, 20 million. I can't remember. But there's so few places that even accept it. And then because they've got that limitation of what uh, you said, $50, mm-hmm. that definitely keeps it down. Like, Yeah. And, and proximity wise, you have to be close to, to the person to do it. I mean, you, you basically have to be a fa- fraudulent company to begin with to be able to steal these transactions. And I well, don't that think or simply replayable. steal the card. I don't think they're replayable. I think that the um, RFID does timestamp stuff. So somehow it's, uh, you know, it's probably not impossible to reverse engineer and figure out how it works and reproduce it and replay it. But um, to my understanding, there is a little bit of a barrier to do it. But so if you were to able, if you were able to get the person's card, that's the main way that it would be compromised. Oh yeah, for sure. If you could steal somebody's card and have them not notice and then go and charge like $50 here and there, you know, you could do that all day. Just think of all the, I guess, Tim Hortons and McDonald's you could get in a day before they recognized that their card was stolen and reported it. That's right. There was also some other hotel chain that had uh same POTA sales compromise to it. White Lodge is also a, a hotel chain that had had their credit card point of sales devices compromised they'd suffered a lot loss for credit card numbers as well but actually canada also had some interesting uh compromises as well so there was a gas station in vancouver in some place in longueuil quebec that had been compromised most likely also a gas pump and 700 credit card had been compromised there and i mean you just compare like the 700 cards that had been compromised probably because it was stuck on mag strip reading instead of chip and pin versus the 70 million cards that target had breached yeah i i think it might be time to get the chip and pin in the states so out of curiosity do you know if atms work using the mag stripe or chip and pin now so the eight abms in Canada, we call them. Um, they use the no, we don't. the chip. Most people call them ATM machines. Well, ATM is automatic teller, and that's not sensitive because you're not automating a teller. I mean, the tellers do so much more. Right? Really? It's an automatic banking machine. <laughs> oh, my God. Seriously? Yeah, is there absolutely. memos that go out about this? What? Is there memos that have gone out about this? Um, uh, sure. this, is, this has been this way for i don't know a decade canada's if they haven't always called them abms it's been for the past 10 years i can show you photos of those little independent ones oh yeah the ones that you should never put your card in because they're mostly always compromised yeah those i've yet to yes. have my card compromised really mm-hmm. but so do those work off primarily okay fine primarily your what are they called abms automatic banking machines banking enthusiast automation (laughs) specialized interaction devices yes the abms so the ones that are provided by banks the ones that you see within your 7-eleven provigo shopping whatever those ones are typically chip and pin. The little crook machines at the beginning of the bar that charge you for like 3 to $5 per transaction. Those are typically mag stripe. Right. 
Okay, fair enough. Just curious because if you can end up compromising the mag stripe, if it's still usable in some fashions, then I guess it's still usable in some fashions. Sure. Sure. Um, and the data that's captured on the mag stripe is a lot of the times what's on the credit card so that you can do an online purchase too, right? The only thing that's not captured within the track one or track two data, as far as I understand, is the CCV number, the credit card validation number. That's only a three-digit number. So I'm sure over time you can figure that one out. So for end users, not just like this is in most cases going to apply more to end users than it is to um, corporations and whatnot. But presumably use the old tactic of voting with your dollar. If you regularly patronize any place that has old magnetic stripe cards, potentially either bring your concerns to them or simply stop frequenting them. In the case of the compromise that we're seeing, I'd say that the onus is on the corporations to have a secure implementation. So, I mean, the target breach is, it's pretty excusable other than the fact that they gave uh, an external company access to their internal account resources, right? Which then led to the compromise. So there shouldn't have, I don't know, it's hard to say. It, they could have solved it through architecture, having architected a system perhaps where they don't share the same credentials as the internal systems, where the internal network's not directly accessible via something that external people are going to be using, not external necessarily through the internet, but through, you know, extranet links, point-to-point links between these other companies. Might have been good for that to terminate in a DMC that doesn't have access to, you know, the internal network. So, I mean, these are considerations. These are why you pay people like me to to solve these types of problems. Um, because, you know, there's only so much protection an individual system can handle. Like we said at the very beginning, it's possible for anything to get compromised. It's just how complicated do you make it and what's worth the amount of money you invest into that. Yeah, it's your risk versus cost again. But really, the, I mean... Potentially the whole root cause here is that people are being asked to protect something which is really unprotectable. They're getting stuck trying to build off of an old infrastructure. Um, It's the same reason that we stopped taking personal checks. They were so easy to forge and so easy to fake that it just became absolutely ridiculous to try and have anyone accept a personal check. Right. It's actually a other company that got compromised. And they didn't release the details onto how they got compromised. So it's really hard to, you know, figure out what went wrong for them. But they took security very seriously. The company that I'm talking about is Kickstarter. And they got compromised and a whole bunch of their information uh, was lost as far as, you know, people who use the service. But credit card numbers weren't gotten out of them because they don't hold that information there. And they don't uh, process the information other than through their ultra secure, probably outsourced credit card processing front end that's separate from the stuff that they store. And even the people's passwords that use the Kickstarter service, although the password file was absconded with by the bad guys, they, they were able to copy it out. 
it was salted and hashed for the old passwords, right? Which is, you know, it's possible for someone to, to crack that and figure out what the person's initial password was, but it's a lot more difficult than a lot of other companies do. And then on top of that, the more current versions, they've actually implemented the proper password algorithms like Bcrypt. I believe that they also used Bcrypt. So the hash that they stored is pretty much infeasible to to brute force. Hmm. So there's, I mean, everybody potentially gets compromised. It's just how you've architected it, uh, how much information you store on your customers and, you know, knowing that potentially you can get compromised, how much is that going to put your customers at risk? And, you know, keeping on top of times and trends to make things be secure. One thing that I wanted to, or at least that occurred to me while I was reading through these articles is I don't want this episode specifically to come across as simply fear mongering, um, building paranoia against any of these things. It's really just to raise awareness on how, even if you're a starting company or if you're starting up a company or if you're working as a security expert, or even if it's just for your own personal security ventures, there are a ton of different vulnerabilities that nefarious people are willing to undertake. It would make a lot of sense to even use the uh, the articles that we've discussed here as some best practices on what not to do. Don't try and build your company on shaky ground. Don't try and work off of um, infrastructure that is already failing. But as we keep saying, it's a cat and mouse game. So while you can follow all of these if you slip up on one or the other, you or even if you follow them to a T, we're still playing the role of the cat. So they keep generating new and better attacks every time a new fix comes out. You know, like we talked about at the top of the show, we have to learn from other people's mistakes. Otherwise, we're doomed to commit them ourselves. And if we can take those lessons learned, communicate them internally within our company, find the, the lessons that we can glom onto and change ourselves to not be victims. That's what we have to do. Here's hoping that this episode, which again was a divergence from the norm. Uh, here's hoping that this was at least of some interest to any of you. If you, as always feel inclined to, to leave us any feedback or give us input on what you've heard, what we've discussed. If you have anything to add to the conversation, by all means do. Other than that, is there anything else that you wanted to add this week? Nope. That's all for this week. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, I hope the, uh, I hope the flood hasn't seeped into your computer room. <laughs> so far it hasn't. Perfect. Well, you have yourself a great week then. Thanks. You too. Stay dry. Stay dry.